Section 2 of The Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. Man on the Meteor, Part 2. You ask me to tell you more about Nona and our life on the meteor? You shall have it, of course. But if you are among those who doubt me, if you are the sort inclined to scoff at everything beyond your own knowledge or your intellectual capacity, I beg you to read no further. My narrative is not for such as you. You will recall my first recollection of my existence was when I found myself a man of twenty, according to earthly standards, on a tiny meteor in the rings of Saturn. I detailed my meeting with a girl-woman, fashioned like myself, our primitive love and union. The days that followed were happy ones for us both. We lived in our cave and seldom left it. The securing of food, preparing it, eating it, and sleeping until we were hungry again, this was our life. Animals, yet both of us with the latent intelligence of civilized human beings. Our spoken language came very fast. We seemed to be pent up with words which, once spoken, were remembered almost without conscious effort. So it is with your earth child, who are the despair of their parents because sometimes they do not talk until they are almost two years old. They have it stored up, and when they do give voice, their fluency is amazing. Our language? I cannot tell you what it was. I do not know. It seemed almost as though we were inventing it as we went along. Yet all languages seem identical to their native users, and my English translation here will suffice. Nona, in her spiritual and mental existence, was the counterpart of myself. Who she was, where she had come from, those questions she could not answer. Her mental life had started on the meteor with herself almost a matured woman. One's mental life, you will realize, is dependent exclusively upon memory and known as memory previous to the time of our meeting, was short and dim. Perhaps human memory only exists with spoken language, or social intercourse, or a similar kind. I do not know. Even your hermit speaks, or has spoken to his fellow man. Other Inhabitants So much for Nona. As I say, we've lived and loved in our cave, two human creatures alone in our world. That was a fallacy, as you will shortly see. There were thousands of others, not like ourselves, indeed, but human nevertheless, on our little meteor, but we did not know it then. Time passed. How much time, I cannot say. A month, five months, perhaps. Time is inconstant, it's the wind itself. As you would very soon perceive were you to live in semi-darkness, eating when you could get the food, sleeping when you were tired, and with no mechanical timepiece or its equivalent to measure arbitrarily your passing existence. The securing of a steady and varied supply of food gave us trouble. I mention this because it has a direct bearing upon the extraordinary change in our existence soon to follow. The day came when we could not capture a lizard. The fungus-like stuff Nona was growing, I had begun heartily to dislike. I had searched every corner of the cave and its passageways for a lizard and had come back unsuccessful. Nona had started a fire and was sitting beside it drying her hair. Water was evaporating from her shoulders, she had been in the stream. A few mollusks, or something of the kind, lay at her feet. See, she cried triumphantly, they are to eat. My man Nemo can get them. They are in the water. I broke them open and ate one. It was good. I kissed her approvingly, and her arms clung about my neck. Nona always was happiest in my approbation. She seemed to think of nothing save how to win it. When her caresses were passed, I stood up. How do I get them? I demanded. Nona must show me once then I will get very many of them for us to eat. The experience that followed was extraordinary. That is to say, it would be so to you here on earth. 
To me that day on the meteor it was merely frightening. Nona led me to the stream and we waded into it waist-deep. I had bathed here, but I had never been further along. Nona had, however. She led me forward to where the water went under a low archway of our cave, and thence into the bowels of the meteor. The riverbed under my feet began sloping downward. The water deepened around me, to my chest, shoulders, almost to my neck. I was terrified. I pulled back from Nona's hand, which was drawing me along. Her hair was floating out like golden seaweed around us. The milk-white water was under her uptilted chin. Her eyes smiled at me tenderly. No, she said. My man Nemo can never be afraid. Afraid? I could not let her see that. I grunted scornfully, and we went forward. The water rose to my own chin. We were well underground now. The ceiling of this subterranean passageway was hardly a foot above my head. In front of me I could see where the ceiling touched the water. Suddenly I remembered Nona. One of her hands still held mine. The other was braced against a projection of the side wall, to hold us against the gentle current that pressed us forward. The water now almost reached the top of her head. I could see her face beneath the surface. Her mouth was open round and wide. A stream of air bubbles came gurgling up from it. Her chest was expanding and contracting rhythmically and swiftly, seemingly with great effort, like a man panting after an exhausting fan. She was breathing the water. Chapter 2 I stared at Nona silently. The air bubbles from her mouth grew less, until soon there were almost none of them. The tidal air in her lungs had been forced out. Water had taken its place. Through her open mouth she was drawing in the water and expelling it, rapid respirations taxing the intercostal muscles almost to their limit. Nona smiled up at me through the water, which in spite of its milk-white colour was curiously limpid and transparent. I felt the tug of her hand. I stepped forward, and in the deepening water my face went under. Whatever may have been my previous existence, an experience such as this quite evidently was no part of it. My instinct was to hold my breath. I did so until I could no longer. I struggled against Nona's hand and tried to get my head above the surface. But she held me, and my fear of having her know me to be afraid was greater than my fear of the water. Breathing water. At last I let out my pent-up breath. It gurgled from my mouth in bubbles. Then, in a gulp of desperation, I inhaled. The water choked me. I tried to cough, but could not. Or at least the cough became my exhalation. My ears were roaring as though the torrents of your Niagara were rushing past them. My head and chest seemed bursting, icy cold at first, then burning with fire. My eyes were open. I was standing beside Nona, and she was looking up at me. Through the half-light of the water, I could see her almost as plainly as through air. She smiled encouragingly at me, and I tried to smile back. I was drawing the water in and out swiftly now, with my mouth held extended like an expiring fish. It was a tremendous effort, this respiration. The muscles of my chest and diaphragm were tired in a moment. The weight in my chest seemed smothering my heart. I seemed on fire inside, a million inflamed little lung passages rebelling at this unaccustomed medium. Spots were dancing before my eyes. I was losing consciousness through lack of oxygen. The poisoned venous blood was dulling my brain. Then I began to feel better. I was respiring now almost as swiftly as Nona, and with far less effort than I had used at first. You are skeptical? Because you cannot breathe your earth water, you assume that I could not breathe this water on my meteor. What quaint logic that is! Yet I find all you earth people think on similar lines. 
It is your inadequate mentality, I suppose, so I must hasten to enlighten you. There are two fundamental objects of respiration. First, the introduction into the system of oxygen, by which the products resulting from the disintegration of the muscular, nervous, and other tissues of the body may be converted into compounds easily eliminated. Secondly, the direct removal of the most noxious and therefore most important of these waste products, carbonic acid gas. In man, as you know him on Earth, this is accomplished by the lungs. The venous blood, charged with its carbonic acid and its waste products needing a renewal of oxygen and a removal of the carbonic acid, is pumped by the heart through the lungs. These, by their construction, present an immense amount of internal surface covered by a vascular network, through which the blood flows in innumerable minute streamlets. In respiration, the inhaled air is separated from the blood only by an extraordinarily thin membrane, less than one twenty-thousandth of an inch in thickness. Through this membrane, the blood absorbs oxygen from the air, giving in return to the air its noxious carbonic acid. Such is the basic process in you earthmen. In the case, let us say, of your earth fishes breathing your water, there is little fundamental difference. The blood in their gills is brought practically into contact with a steadily moving stream of water. But fishes do not get their oxygen from the water in some mysterious fashion. Did you think they did? They get the oxygen not from water, but from air, the air that is held in solution in the water. But for two things you on earth could breathe your water. First, your lung passages are too minute to receive a substance so heavy, so unvolatile, let me say, as is the water of earth. Secondly, there is not proportionally enough air in your water. Both these conditions were different on my meteor. You ask, perhaps, are my lungs the same as yours? I think so, but I do not know. At my death you of earth will find out, for I have willed my organs to your scientific men. How it was possible! But this I do know. This water on my meteor was very different from water as you know it. I have already said it was light and thin. To be exact, I estimate that on your earth it would have a specific gravity of no more than 0.18, placing your water at 1.0. In your sea water, a normally fleshy man will float with a small margin to spare. This water on my meteor was not saline. But more than that, Nona and I stood submerged in it with hardly any perceptible feeling of buoyancy. Let me make my point still clearer. The low specific gravity of this water compared to yours was principally caused by the large amount of air it held in solution. It was, in a word, highly aerified to an extent proportionally eleven times more than is your average water on earth. For this reason, my lungs needed but one eleventh the amount of it from which to secure the necessary oxygen. On earth, your normal respiration varies widely. 16 to 20 times per minute for a healthy adult at rest might be taken as a fair average. I was breathing this water at approximately 80 respirations per minute. I do not know how long I stood there under the surface with Nona before I attained a semblance of normality, but gradually the burning in my chest and the smothering of my heart subsided. My brain cleared. I looked about me curiously. The water was clear, and transparent to a remarkable degree. There seemed inherent light diffused through it, like a phosphorescence. We had taken several steps forward, and were well below the surface now. Underneath my feet was a sandy soil. To the right and left were rocky walls, the sides of the submerged tunnel. And ahead lay open water, dim in the distance, 
with the narrow sandy floor sloping downward like a path down a hillside. Everything was slightly blurred in outline. Nona's hair floated out above her. The freedom of movement we had in the air above was gone. We were hampered in moving by the friction of the water. But it was nothing like the friction of walking in your water. Indeed, it was far more like your earthly existence on land. Often now, on an oppressively heavy, foggy day here on earth, I am reminded of it. I am very specific in detailing these sensations. You will see why in a moment. You will see that this experience was the means of saving both our lives, known as and mine, and projecting us into a new era of my existence. For after the very next time of sleep, the catastrophe to our tiny world overtook us. Chapter 3 We found our mollusks and struggled back up the sloping path to shallow water. On the bank I lay and coughed, gasping and struggling to remove the residual water from my lungs and replace it with air. The transition back was far worse than entering the water. Nona, who quite evidently had done it several times before, recovered more quickly than I. As I lay panting and choking upon our couch, she made up a fire. The two stones which she rubbed together ignited in a moment, a slow, sulfurous-looking flame with a little smoke, which the slight current of air through the cave carried away. Then, when the first stones were burning, she added other stones which glowed like coal. We ate our meal, and I lay again upon the couch with Nona sitting beside me. I was dozing, thinking over the experience I had undergone, and planning how I could get more of this water food. The fire. I was awakened by a sense of burning and smothering. I sat up, coughed, and twitched at Nona's hair to arouse her. The cave was full of smoke. Beside me was what seemed a pit of fire. The heat from it was intolerable. I flung Nona into the air and followed her myself with a leap. Across the cave we stood trembling with fright, regarding the red monster of fire that had eaten for itself an open pit in the cave floor. Nona had forgotten to extinguish the fire of our evening meal. These rocks were inflammable. The fire had eaten its way downward as a fire on your earth would eat downward into a bed of coal, spreading out beneath the ground. Nona and I did not reason it out that way at the time. All we knew was that the red fire monster had broken loose, and we were afraid of it. Blue and red tongues of flame licked up from the mouth of its lair. Its hot, poisonous breath was stifling us even across the cave. I was inactive only for a moment. Bidding Nona keep away, I tried to throw dirt into the little crater mouth. But the dirt had no effect. I might have extinguished it with water, you say? True. I might, though I think now that the volatile, highly aerated water would have been of little avail. I did not try the water. I did not know that water and fire were traditional enemies nor did Nona. How were we to know that, unless we had chanced to discover it for ourselves, which we had not? Nona screamed at me, and I gave up my futile efforts. The air in the cave was almost suffocating, and with the instinct that comes to any trapped animal underground, we scrambled up the passageway to the surface of the meteor. It was night, with silver Saturn filling the overhead sky. Trembling, we stood and watched the cave mouth from which a visible line of smoke was now issuing. Our home was down there. The fire monster had it, and we could not go down and take it from him. We never went back to the cave. The meteor's swift days and nights passed in rapid succession, and during several of them we stood helplessly watching. Presently the fire came to the surface. I realize now that it was eating its way downward as well as upward, until the entire vicinity of the cave was glowing with molten burning rocks. The ground all around the cave mouth soon fell inward. 
a seething crater was exposed where the cave had been, a bottomless pit of lurid-licking flames with black smoke rolling up from it and the hissing of steam below. We took instant flight, swimming through the air over our tiny world until, on its opposite hemisphere, we found sanctuary. There was no evidence of the fire here. We were pleased. We would find another cave, another river, and build our home anew. We were both famished. I caught a lizard and we ate it, uncooked, for we were both afraid to unleash again the monster that had all but overcome us. Then we slept, and again, when two of the meteor's brief days and nights were past, and Saturn was sinking below the horizon to give place to dawning sunlight, we searched for a new cave. No cave was to be found, but there was water. A river several hundred yards wide bubbled up from the ground and flowed in a broad, shallow stream toward the horizon. We followed it to a tiny line of hills. Into a hole in a cliff face it plunged downward with an impetuous current. The new home. Here we decided to build our home. There were blue rushes along the riverbank. Nona gathered them. She would dry them, plate them into robes for our couches. Once I flew back to the fire. I could not get very close to it, for the air choked me. The fire seemed to be burning itself out. It was dull, with flickering puffs of flame in the midst of a thick pall of smoke, which hung motionless in the still air. I returned to Nona. The fire monster is dying, I said. But it has eaten our cave. We were both pleased that it was dying. I know now what was happening. The fire was being smothered for lack of fresh air to sustain its combustion. Had there been any wind, I do not doubt but that the entire surface of the meteor would have been consumed. An almost equally grave danger threatened us, however, and presently we were made aware of it. The smothering, smoldering fire gave off steadily a tremendous volume of unconsumed gas. Even without any wind, they diffused themselves throughout the meteor's atmosphere. It was so small a world, with so thin a blanket of air about it, an infinitesimal fraction of the air that envelops your earth. Rapidly it became polluted with poisonous gases from the half-smothered fire, polluted throughout its entire extent. For a day we were uneasy. Then we grew frightened. There was little evidence of smoke, only a blue haze, but the air seemed to choke us. It was the poisonous breath of the fire monster come to make us sick. We tried to go somewhere to escape it, but we were on the opposite side of the world from it already, and no matter which direction we took, inevitably we approached it. Except upward. We tried higher altitudes. The air was purer up there, but also it was thinner and we could not live in it for any length of time. Nor could we sustain ourselves aloft indefinitely, to say nothing of sleeping and eating. Once, in desperation, we tried swimming off the meteor into space, but the lack of any breathable air at all soon brought us struggling downward. That night there was a gentle wind. The breath of the fire monster swept up over the horizon and came upon us with a deadly blast. We woke up choking. It was daylight, with a small red-yellow sun dim and blurred by the poisonous haze that enveloped us. Nona was crying. But suddenly I laughed triumphantly, for I realized now that the fire monster could not harm us. We were lying at the riverbank, I seized Nona in my arms and flung her headlong downward into the water, and I plunged in after her. The water here was deep, thirty feet perhaps as you on earth would measure it. With arms flying we sank like stones to the river bottom. Chapter 4 I was presently breathing the water with fair normality. Indeed, after the noxious air we had been struggling with so long, it came almost as a relief. Nona's arms were about my neck, 
I loosed them, but she clung to my hand. Together we tried to stand upright. This river bottom seemed a grey sand, but we could not maintain footing. The water was empty, by which I mean there was no marine vegetation here, nothing that we could grip with our hands, and from behind us the current wafted us gently but irresistibly forward. I soon discovered that normally we would float in an upright position. We held ourselves so, with our toes occasionally touching the soil, bouncing along like feathers in a gentle breeze. The scene around us now more resembled a misty grey day on one of your sandy earth deserts than anything else I can call to mind. The ground was undulating grey sand, sloping upward to one side, and with a steady incline downward in front, and down this slope we were blowing. Swim, you say? It never occurred to either of us. We were frightened. We clung to each other, striving to remain upright. Very soon the light from overhead seemed to deepen. But other light, the diffused light inherent to the water itself, grew brighter by contrast. We were swept forward much faster and down a much steeper hill. I know now that the change was caused by the river having plunged into that cliff face to become subterranean. How far we were carried I cannot say, a mile perhaps or more, Rocky cliffs now seemed to pen us in, and it was as though we were in a steep canyon with a powerful wind driving us down through it. Then abruptly we came to the end of the canyon. Open country lay before us. There were hills in the distance with the level floor of the sea between us and them. Long stalks of vegetation reared themselves up through the water, so high that I could not see to their tops. Slender spires of growing things rooted below branching out above with huge air bladders to keep them floating, the whole waving slowly to and fro. On some of them there seemed what you might term fruit. The Sub-Sea Home It was a strange but a beautiful and peaceful scene. This, then, was our new home, our new world, and how much better, more hospitable it was than the one we had left. My heart swelled with pride as, standing beside my mate, I gazed at our new possessions. A small living thing, slender and elongated with a flat, waving tail, went past us waist-high. I clutched at it clumsily, but it eluded me and darted away. On the ground beneath our feet were living things in shells. I seized one and ate it and called to Nona. Sounds? It was very still and quiet down here, but no more so than on the surface of the meteor above. The sound of my voice carried to Nona. Indeed, sounds here in the water carried very far though somewhat muffled and blurred. Having eaten of the shellfish, the berries and the fruits, we lay down on the sand with Nona's hair floating above us. We were in the shelter of a tenuous clump of ferns which spread out like an arbor above us. I twisted my leg in them to hold us from possible drifting, and Nona clung to me. We would rest and then build our home here. Chapter 5 How long we slept I do not know. Nona brought me back to consciousness, she was twitching at my arm and whispering in my ear frantically. What? I demanded. But she silenced me. She was pointing with a trembling hand. I saw what it was. Half a mile away, perhaps, over the sand hills, I could see figures moving. Living things were advancing towards us, along the water bottom. I sat up alert. Living things! I would capture and kill one for food. But as they came steadily closer... I saw that each of them was nearly as large as ourselves, and there were ten or more of them. I trembled, and Nona and I drew back into the fern to hide. The things continued to advance. Soon I saw that they were upright, coming along the sand as though walking, slowly but steadily. I thought they had not seen us. 
Nona and I lay very quiet with our hearts pounding with fright. Soon the things were so close that I could examine them in detail. They were apparently human as ourselves, made after a general plan like our own. I have since named them Marinoids, a name that may serve as well as any other. The males, or shall I call them men, were some five feet in height. Their bodies were pink-white, smooth, with a glistening skin. They were clothed, crude, greenish garments wrapped around them tightly. They had feet and jointed legs, which, however, were connected by a flapping membrane. Their chests were over-large. There were four arms, two at each shoulder. The arms waved in the water sinuously, like the tentacles of an octopus. At the ends of the arms were fingers, very long and slim, and a huge pincer, like that of a crab. Yet for all that, these beings seemed in human form. The heads were hairy and round, with two eyes only slightly protruding, a nose and a mouth not much different from my own, save that it was larger. The women were slightly shorter and more slender than the men, with long dark hair that floated habitually above them. In this party which now approached us were ten individuals, four of them women. In spite of their size, there was about them, both women and men, a curious aspect of unsolidity. I felt less afraid of them as I realized it. They looked as though I could crush them in my arms. Their chests especially seemed no more than thin inflated membranes, expanding and contracting with extraordinary rapidity. I wondered, with a sudden flush of triumph, if these things would be good to eat. I whispered it to Nona. I can capture one, I said confidently. Wait, she cautioned. The marinoids were still walking toward us along the sand. Slow, dragging footsteps combined with a sort of waddle for their legs were hampered by the membrane which connected them. Their arms were waving back and forth. The backs of most of them were bent, with their faces downward as though they were examining the sand. I must have made some movement. They saw us. They stopped and seemed to grow suddenly alert. The men consulted together, pointing at us. The women drew partially behind them as though for protection. I struggled upright, in spite of Nona's warning and her restraining hold. I would fight these things, kill them for our food. It would be a glorious feast. My Nona was hungry. The fight. I plunged forward. The marinoids were alarmed. Startled would describe their aspect better. The men stood their ground. The women darted upward through the water. "'swimming on one side with legs waving the connecting membrane "'like a great fish's tail. "'One of the marinoid men had shouted something. "'I could hear his voice plainly, words seemingly, a rasping order. "'Nona was behind me, following me closely, ready to help me fight. "'Quick!' I shouted. "'Catch one, Nona!' "'It was so futile. "'The marinoid men left the sand and darted at us so quickly "'that we could not have eluded them had we tried. "'They were upon us in an instant. "'I was helpless as they threw me down.' and with surprising strength in those three-foot-long tentacles wrapped them around me and held me. Three of the men were thus engaged with me, and two were holding Nona. But they did not attempt to hurt us. Indeed, they seemed to avoid doing so. The sixth marinoid, he who had shouted the order, was hastily gathering long rope-like segments of the vegetation. At his command, Nona and I were raised upright. The women came down to the sand, and they all inspected us curiously, talking among themselves with words to us unintelligible, but gestures which seemed wholly rational. At last they bound our arms tightly against our sides and started us walking along the sand. They were leading us away, out over the sandy open spaces, toward a line of hills in the distance. The women swam above us. The men walked in a group, pushing Nona and me in front. We could run faster than they, 
and once we broke away, but they swam after us and caught us in an instant, and one of them warned us with a gesture which was unmistakable. Soon I saw what this party had been doing before they encountered us. We passed occasionally huge receptacles made seemingly of woven sea vegetation. Into these baskets they had gathered various living, shell-backed creatures of the water bottom, and these baskets in turn would be gathered up and carted away by other marinoids. I learned this later. Nona and I understood none of it at the time. As we advanced, the aspect of things around us changed continually. The vegetation grew thicker until soon we were in a veritable forest of it, and we seemed to be following a road, a pathway which had been cleared. Abruptly I heard a shout ahead. The marinoid women swimming above us came suddenly down. Our leader said something, and they all drew back from the road, pulling us with them. A shout ahead of us grew louder. A moving object came into view, a sort of sleigh made of a huge shell. It was gliding over the sandy road towards us, pulled by a strange swimming animal. In the sleigh were two marinoid men, the larger of them elaborately clothed. The sleigh halted abreast of us. The smaller of its occupants stood up and shouted vehemently, and suddenly I realized that he was shouting at me. My captors were lying prone on the sand and had pulled Nona down with them. But in their excitement and awe, for this was the ruler of their world, they had left me standing alone. I stared stupidly at the angry figure in the sleigh, and suddenly in his wrath at the effrontery of my upright posture before his monarch, he launched something at me. I saw it leave his hand. It was long, thin, and pointed. It came through the water like a spear thrown through air. It hit my head a glancing blow. I sank down to the sand. I heard shouts around me. Nona was screaming, then my senses faded into blackness. Chapter 6 You have read my tale of the Marinoids, a brief glimpse, and only a glimpse, for I am an old man, and my memory is full of strange lapses. One of your earth poets has said, There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. How very true that is. You who breathe air and live on land... On one and only one tiny little earth among all the billions upon billions of worlds that throng our universe, how little you dream of the existence of other beings. I tell you only simple facts, within the failing memory of my own human lifetime. I do not expect you to credit me. Your life has been too narrow, your experience limited to one infinitesimal rut in the Creator's vast plan. And though I cannot altogether blame you, since you are thus limited, it makes me smile to realize how fatuous you are with your self-importance. I have not seen this. I cannot understand it. So it cannot be. Only one point in my narrative I wish you to grasp and ponder over. I assume you agree that although Nona and I, at the time, were merely at the beginning of our mental life, we had latent within us an intelligence the equal of your own. Let us say we were broadly representative of you. Yet Nona and I were not the intelligent superior human beings, captured by some strange marine animals, as a man in your waters might be set upon by sharks. Quite the reverse. It was we who were the inferior humans. To these marinoids we were unknown, savage things who had invaded their world. This is not theory, it is fact. And so, if by the recital of this narrative I have even made you stop and think that perhaps you and your kind are not all important in the Creator's plan, my purpose will have been accomplished. End of section 2